Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are going over the end-of-season UCI rankings for riders and teams and diving into what that can teach us, as well as talking about Remco Evanepoel going to my hometown, Lawrence, Kansas, to do a bike race at the end of the month. Why the heck is he doing that, and what does that mean for gravel racing? And the bit of chaos going on over at Enios, as well as the Tour de France route reveal. I'm, I'm very late on this. It came out late last week, but I will touch on a few important points. But before we get into that, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition. It comes out once a week. If you like the podcast, that's a no-brainer. Sign up for that right now. There's a link in the show notes. And if you want more coverage, there is a paid edition. It comes out daily during Grand Tours and as well as covering every major race and has some pretty good off-season content. I was actually going back and reading the last off-season content and got a little bit overwhelmed because I thought it was pretty in-depth and I thought, ooh, can I really do this again? How did I do this in the first place? But if you want access to that, you can just sign up at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. So the 2022 Tour de France route was revealed uh, late last week. This is, uh, I think people get way too into this. I'm going to preface this. I'm going to preface this conversation with that and then get way too into it. But I, I feel like there's this mistake of sitting down and going through stage by stage and just trying to predict what's going to happen on each day. The important thing to remember is we can't predict what's going to happen because a lot of times the, the big days, the big GC days end up being what look like the most benign days on paper. And then these big especially third week set piece mountain stages end up kind of being nothing burgers. Um, that's exactly what we saw at this last Tour de France where a lot of the GC action was in the first week. And then the final week was, was just kind of, you know, the top three riders riding away from everyone else and then sprinting amongst themselves for the stage wins. So um, I think it's a big mistake to try to go through this and predict what's going to happen. I, I do think one thing we can discern is there's not as many sprint stages as there usually are at the tour, but this really, there's six sprint stages, which brings us more in line with what the Vuelta and the Giro have been offering in years past. I think this is good. Um, I don't think there's any reason we need, we had like 11 flat stages last year that they didn't all end up being sprints, but there, there's no the tour doesn't owe anything to like quote unquote sprinters who can only win if it's a flat, easy day and they have a lead out train and they can out sprint everyone. Um, I, I, in my opinion, that's the, those stages are pretty boring and don't really contribute to the overall interest of the race. I think grand tour routes have been getting more and more interesting in recent years. So this makes a lot of sense. It's all Eight mountain stages, six flat stages, four hilly stages, two individual time trials totaling in 53 kilometers, and one flat stage that has cobblestones, 19 stages, 19 kilometers of cobblestones, which will be incredibly tricky for the GC riders. But, you know, I like these tour routes that are pretty challenging start to finish. The first three stages are in uh, Denmark. So you would think that's easy because it's flat, but the first stage is a time trial and we will see time gaps on that. 13 kilometers long, so nothing too big. Um, the second stage is a sprint stage, but it does go over like a 20 kilometer bridge towards the end of the race. So uh, you could see some pretty serious crosswinds on that bridge and 
could potentially blow the race up. And then stage three is another flat stage, um, which in Denmark, you could also have crosswinds. So, I mean, nothing is given at the tour. That's why I, I think it's kind of odd that it's like this lament of the sprint stages. It's like, we don't need 12 stages that are just flat sprint set pieces. Like, and especially the sprinters now, even the big, big sprinters like Sam Bennett and Pascal Ackerman are so versatile that they've they they've adapted to get over tough rolling hills and contest sprints even on um, stages where thing where the peloton might be slightly reduced. I I do wonder if a lot if some of this like media hand wringing is our journalists going to bat for Mark Cavendish who was kind of complaining at, he he was invited to the choke to the I guess the reveal of the tour route even though he probably won't be at the tour next year. I don't even think he has a contract for next year. And if he's on Dakota Quickstep, he almost certainly won't make the tour squad since they have so many good sprinters. Um, yeah, I, I don't totally get it. I like these hard races. And I, I even saw Innerring, who is like an anonymous um, cycling rider, very good, kind of suggesting that it's going to be a boring race because it's going to be so hard. I don't think there's any evidence to support that. Um, there's nothing that says if we have 12 stinkers of a stage that are super easy that will get fireworks in the third week, these contenders are so good now that they can, you know, they're so good across the board that, yeah, they can handle hard stages that are flat, hard stages that are over the cobblestones, tough hilly stages, mountain stages, mountain stages and time trials. Um, this isn't, the, I feel like people are stuck in the past a little bit where um, in the, in even 10 years ago, five years ago, some of these GC contenders would not have been able to handle those stages and would have crashed out or lost so much time that the race would have been kind of decimated and maybe slightly boring by the third week. But also there's like a conservation of energy theory here where the easier the course, quote unquote, easier the whole course, the harder it's ridden. Um, the harder the course, the easier it's ridden. And everything just kind of comes out in the wash. Uh, I I think that this is a little ridiculous ridiculous to kind of suggest that it's going to be a boring tour because the course is too hard. Um, if anything, they've, they've struck a very nice balance and, um, any day could be a GC day or almost any day, but obviously that doesn't work like that. You can't have 21 GC days. Um, it just means there is the potential for GC action on any day, which, which to me creates a great, great race. I think we'll continue the trend that we saw this past year. This has been happening for a few years. We're we're just not going to get these days where um, there's like a token breakaway. We saw this at the the Vuelta a lot, like four riders up the road um, taking turns, pulling, and then they get pulled in, reeled in before the sprint finish. That's just not how the tour is really raced anymore. If you remember this past year, every breakaway was, was incredibly stacked, incredibly hard to get into. Um, those breakaway spots were earned and we saw, we saw some victories out of the breakaway. So, um, we'll just keep seeing that more and more at the tour. Um, and, and in my opinion, th- those stages aren't missed. Those were completely wasted days that added nothing to the race. We don't need to see, um, four small French teams off the front. Like I, I have no nostalgia for that. I think racing is just getting harder and harder, which creates better and better racing. So 53 kilometers of time trial, that's roughly in line with what we saw this last year where we had 58. Um, that will help Tade Pogacar um, and Primus Roglic. I think that it's going to be very hard for anyone to beat those two riders. The only 
Other riders I could see that really matched them physically are Jonas Vindegaard, Jonas Vindegaard and Joao Almeida. The only problem is Jonas Vindegaard is teammates with Primoz Roglic and Joao Almeida's teammates with Tadej Pogacar. So um, barring injury from those two stars, I don't think those other two riders will get a chance to try to beat them. Um, you have Egan Bernal. He's currently at plus 1400 in the betting markets. I think he could win if something happens to Pogacar. And Roglic, which isn't impossible. This is a super tricky first week. Um, we saw a lot of chaos in the first week. This last year, I think we could see some similar stuff with those uh, flat stages in Denmark and the cobblestone stage. One interesting thing is it start, the race starts with the time trial. A lot of people claimed that this last tour was so hectic in the first week because there was no time trial to like, quote unquote, calm the peloton down. Since it creates time gaps, it means the sprinters don't really have a chance to get the yellow jersey. And in, in some people's theory, this, this creates a safer race, less intense race, because then riders aren't all competing for the race lead. I don't totally buy that, because I think what's happening is people are fighting to be at the front to win stages, to stay, to stay safe, and if you're a GC contender, to, to make sure you don't crash or be stuck behind a crash and lose time. People are not fighting to stay at the front to try to get the yellow jersey like i think that's a that's an aim for very few riders so um i don't buy that theory at all i don't think we're going to see um some calming of the peloton in this first week i think it's going to be very 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 intense other small notes we get a lot more we get five summit, summit finishes or five stages that i've like designated as summit as summit finishes some are i guess i would say uphill like the super la planche de la belfi not technically like a high alpine summit, but it will be a very, very difficult summit finish. We saw the time trial finish up there on the stage 20 on the 2020 Tour de France. Um, obviously, that was pretty exciting. And we actually saw, if I remember correctly, in the 2019 Tour on stage 6, Dylan Toons won on this exact finish. This will help Primoz Roglic and Tadej Pogacar, but the, my, my big thesis here is everything helps those guys. Um, the act of getting on a bike and racing helps those guys. Um, everyone's so well-rounded now that I think these, these route reveals are a little less important than they used to be. If they did no time trials, Tadej Pogacar would probably still be the favorite. If they did 200 kilometers of time trials, Tadej Pogacar would probably still be the favorite. Everyone's so good at everything at the top, top level that it is just less important. And it also, it, it doesn't always work out. I mean, Tom Dumoulin for years was like dodging the tour because he didn't think there was enough time trials. And then all of those tours ended up coming down to the time trial and he probably would have been fine at that race. So it, it's not just pundits and fans that overthink this, but the riders themselves can, always t can also tend to overthink it and uh, make race start decisions that are potentially ill-advised. And you might look at these this, this five summit finishes and think that, oh, it's going to be really exciting. I, I have like a crackpot theory that the summit finishes are actually more boring than the um, non-summit finishes. If you remember this last tour, the biggest gaps happened on stage eight, which, which did not finish on a summit, finishes finished on a descent because it encourages, encourages riders to attack further from the finish. If there's a summit finish, everyone just waits until the final climb maybe even the last like two, three K, maybe even the last 200 meters of the climb. And that's where all the action is concentrated. When it's not a summit finish, the action gets, gets more dispersed throughout the stage. Last note on this is, so stage 20 time trial, just like in 2020, a 2020 and 2021 had that as well. 
Um, it really tough time trial um, has has some tough climbing in it. It's I think that it's going to come down to that time trial that obviously helps Tadej Pogacar or Primoz Roglic. Um, but if we see a similar, if you remember the final time trial at the tour this year, Pogacar didn't have a great time trial, didn't have a great race. Um, if Primus Roglic was, if that happens again this year and Primus Roglic is within a minute or a minute and a half of him and that happens, you could potentially see like a dramatic overtake, um, which would be kind of fantastic because it would mirror the overtake of Roglic back in 2020. Um, just something to keep an eye on that I was actually really surprised at how hard that time trial course was. All right, getting into the UCI rankings. I just sent out a post on this um, via the newsletter. We're in a bit of an awkward time. I mean, technically the season's over. There's no more World Tour races left, but the the calendar just kind of rambles along until it sputters out. So you have like some riders still racing, like some guys raced last weekend at some smaller races at the Tour of the Veneto. I'm sure a beautiful race. I love the Veneto. Um, but I just think that it, it makes it really awkward. There's no end of season. Um, it doesn't really give us any closure. I, I find it very hard um, as a fan and someone who follows cycling for a living to to really comprehend and adjust to every year. It like seems to come out of left field every time it happens. Um, and it makes it hard to delineate an end of the season where you can start like going back and reflecting on past performances. But I am counting Lombardia as it. That is the end of the season. So um, the UCI points rankings we have now, um, in my opinion, are final. I, I prefer Peace Pro Cycling Stats points, but they do a funny system where um, if you look at their rankings right now, it's, from, it's not just from Jan 1 to now. It's actually a rolling 12-month system. So I'm going to wait until, normally that wouldn't be a big deal, but because we had the season that went late into the year last year, um, you get a few distorted uh, results there because um, some riders, I mean, think it we're doing the Vuelta Espana right now this this time last year. So if they did well there, they're going to carry points over into the current rankings. So I will start. I will switch over to PCS um, when we get later into the off season, and, and that's what I use for my BTP net ratings. Um, I'll I'll be doing weekly transfer updates and then once the rosters are set in january then i um, plug it into my btp net model and i can kind of uh it spits out how each team it's a completely objective analysis um i do put a little bit of subjective spin on if i think the projection is realistic or not and it will um tell you how well each team is going to do based on their offseason acquisitions or Culling, perhaps, is what maybe what you'd call that, the, the riders they've departed with. Um, I'll probably also, before the end of the year, go back and rate myself, um, both how the model did and then how my subjective spin on it did. Um, it it's, was pretty close. I'll get into this in a little bit more detail later in the podcast. There were a few outliers, um, and, th- and there's always going to be. I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about sports is it's, it's not a computer. Um, where Bahrain was much better than expected, much better than my model expected, and teams like um, Bike Exchange were much worse, like much worse. Um, and I'll and I'll dive into that in, in in future posts as well. So if we go to the top twenty UCI rankings, I'll put a link to this post in the podcast notes, so you can you can pop it up, look at it, follow along if you want. Um, no surprise, Tadej Pogacar is first. Um, he had one of the best seasons I can remember from a rider in a long time to win. 
two monuments and the Tour de France is really that's Eddie Merckx type stuff. And yeah, it's actually I don't think that it's being reflected as maybe as well as it should be by the media. Um, even Remco Evenepoel recently had a quote where he's like, I have a long ways to catch up to Primoz Roglic, Tadej Pogacar, and Egan Bernal. It's like, well, if we're splitting hairs here, like Tadej Pogacar is on a completely different level than those other two riders who are very good themselves. Um, and second is Wout Van Aert, who um, really had a great, I mean, I guess objectively had a great season. I, I thought there was a few, not concerning things, but just something, to, some things to keep an eye on. Like, Specifically, his lack of ability to win major one-day races, you know, potentially could be a blip, um, just bad luck, but um, he's not really proven that he can consistently win long one-day races. Third is Primoz Roglic, fourth is Julian Alaphilippe, fifth is Egan Bernal, sixth is Sonny Cabrelli, great year for him, seventh, Matthew Vanderpool, eighth is Adam Yates, ninth is Joao Almeida, tenth is Richard Carapaz. Um, and then just for reference, Alejandro Valverde is in 11th, which is pretty good considering he's 41 years old. Matty Modric, the breakout Slovenian, is 12th. Michael Woods is 13th. Great result for Woods. Remco Evenepoel in 14th. David Goddard, 15th. Great result for David Goddard. Jasper Stoyven in 16th. Jasper Philip in 17th. I think um, Jasper Philipson, um, if you told him at the beginning of the year that he would be 17th in the UCI rankings, um, he wouldn't believe you. 18th is Jonas Vinegard. Another really, really impressive result there. 19th, Tim Merlier. And then 20th, Balko Melema. Um, but just a few notes on on each of these riders and, and kind of my takeaways from this. Um, as I said, Pogacar, one of the best seasons I've ever seen. Um, not much you can say negative here. The only thing, <laughs> the only thing maybe is could he do it next year? That doesn't really seem fair though because it it hasn't happened yet. Um, and maybe the the worrying thing here for everyone else is he's he's the best racer in the world and he seems to be getting better. Um, he was third on this list last year, and now he's first. And his on-road performances are also possibly improving. I mean, he looks when when his mind is really set to it, and he's in form. He can absolutely destroy people in almost every discipline. So, uh, not a super easy rider to game plan against. I, I'm not quite sure what I would advise, other than hope that he crashes. Um, which is possible, and and we'll talk about like who the beneficiaries of of that would be because it's not rarely like do you have a like Lance Armstrong's run of seven tours was so unique because it just had never what are the odds that someone is healthy for seven years someone doesn't crash for seven years at the tour um, even have a flat tire at the wrong time I mean it's almost impossible so it can sound kind of weird and and boring and and almost defeatist to say like well he could crash or he could have a flat tire but those things happen. Um, it wouldn't be crazy to imagine in, in a three tour de France block that um, he would crash either in the lead up to it or during it, or at least have a, have an ill-timed puncture. Um, he, he's really been lucky in that respect. Um, Wout Van Aert in second place. As I said, when we were reading the list, the list uh, really, I mean, you can't be in second in the UCI points rankings it is hard to argue with. That's a great season. He had three. His hat trick win at the Tour de France is really incredible. Mountain stage, time trial, and sprint stage. Um, haven't seen anything like that since the 70s. So super impressive. If we're splitting hairs, he did have us. He stepped back in the one day monuments. He, you know, if you remember, he won Milano San Remo in 2020, got really close second at Flanders, basically lost on a bike throw to Matthew Vanderpool. This year, he never really challenged for, I don't think, I mean, he did have a podium at i believe that was milano san ramo but he never really was knocking on the door for a monument win um as well as the world championships or the road race both of which suited him 
I think you have to consider that somewhat disappointing. Um, and it's hard. I mean, it's kind of hard for me to square this circle because I want, you know, in my mind, Wout Van Aert is um, like a successor to a Tom Boonen or Fabian Cancellara. And in many ways, he's even more talented than those riders. But as, as far as consistently winning one-day races, he's just not there. It's the same thing with Matthew Vanderpool, where you see Vanderpool in many ways is much more talented than Van Aert, or sorry, than Boonen or Cancellara. But as far as converting those into big monument victories, these guys just currently aren't doing it. And, and they're not super young. I mean, I think Van Aert just turned 27 and Vanderpool turns 27 this offseason. So it's not like they have a ton of time to figure this out either. And one thing to point out about Van Aert is he, he did kind of have this rise and it's almost like he's cursed with, with such a diverse skill set that it's hard to focus where... He got second behind Tade Pogacar at Torino Adriatico, which was really impressive. I mean, he's, he beat Garrett Thomas, Egan Bernal, and, and what is kind of a mini Giro d'Italia. I thought his Tour de France, I thought he could have ridden onto the podium at that race if he, if he cracked on stage nine, rainy mountain day. There weren't actually many mountain days after that that actually could have imagined him losing major time. Um, that If he would have gotten through that day high up in the GC, I think he could have finished on the podium. I think if he really put his mind to it, he would be one of the only riders that could challenge Tadej Pogacar simply because his time trial is so good. And when he his, puts his mind to it, his climbing is incredible. I mean, if you remember, he won the double Vontu stage at the Tour, quite possibly the hardest mountain stage of the race. But I wonder if he is somewhat stuck between these two disciplines. Um, Tadej Pogacar can win monuments in, in the Tour de France at the same time. That is unusual. That is not normal. No one really has that luxury. And in many ways, Tade is using, uh, he, he's cheating or hedging a little bit where he's winning Liège or Lombardia. These are two races that climbing is incredibly important at. So while it's not a one-for-one skill crossover with Grand Tours, it's pretty close. Um, Wout is, is doing well at Torino Adriatico and then trying to win Tour Flanders like in the same month. So it's not even clear to me if that's possible. I haven't looked back to the records. I, I don't know if that's happened. I don't know. I can't imagine the same rider won Torino Adriatico and Tour Flanders in the same year in the modern history of the sport. So it's possible that he's just spread a little bit too thin. And on top of this, he's a pretty important domestique for his Jumbo Visma team. Just seems like one responsibility too many or like one uh, project too many. Um, I personally would prefer to see him winning one day races. I think that's like a more exciting use of his talents. I think for him to win Grand Tours, he would have to be incredibly skinny. He would have to give up a lot of his explosiveness. Um, it would just make him a little bit more of a boring rider. It would kind of turn him from like Tom Boonen into Cadell Evans. Um, no, nothing against Cadell Evans, but he was one of the most bland riders, a very talented rider, but a very, very bland rider. Um, and I do think Van Aert would, would have to be in that same vein if he wanted to win Grand Tours. Um, so just for that reason, I would love to see him focus on one-day races, but it would, it's also cool to imagine him kind of finding his footing in Grand Tour racing and challenging Tadej Pogacar in the next like two or three Tour de France's, um, especially with the Tour route. It, it would really suit Van Aert. It doesn't have a ton of sprint stages, and I think this is great, just getting rid of these boring sprint stages for the sake of having a sprint stage. Um, there is, you know, there's a lot of climbing. There's a lot of summit finishes, but Van Aert is better at that than, than you would think. Um, it's just a lot of really difficult kind of transition days or like medium hard days, which, which is great for his type of talent. So if we see 
Grand Tours moving towards that, that could be very good for him and kind of give him the edge over Pogacar. Primoz Roglic goes from first last year to third this year. Um, this could be his first signs of decline for the 31-year-old, but on the other hand, he missed the he he basically netted no points from the Tour de France because he crashed out of it last year. He got second and then won the Vuelta. Um, he did win the Olympic time trial and the Vuelta España later in the year and looked maybe as good as he ever has in those races. So I think he's he's probably doing all right. I think he has one or two years left of like prime GC talent. So yeah, he will be challenge. I think he will be the biggest challenger for Pogacar at the Tour next year. This also makes it a little bit difficult that also makes it a little bit difficult for Wout Van Aert to find a def, like defined lane on that team because Roglic is going to be the number one option for the Tour de France uh it's it's he's the second best Grand Tour race in the world you'd be crazy not to give him leadership but it means Van Aert both has to help him and doesn't have a chance to kind of rise in his his own right as a as a contender but as we saw Jonas Vindegaard this year just kind of you know, he, he went to the tour to help Roglic. Roglic cr- crashed out, and Vinegard got a chance to shine. But it isn't clear like what happens to Vinegard this year. Like he goes from getting second to working for Roglic. Is that how that's that's going to work? Um, that's a tough place to be as a team to have that many rising stars, um, as well as an established star who's older. And how do you balance those priorities? Julian Alaphilippe comes in fourth. Uh, really tough to argue with that. That's a pretty good. Uh, finish on the year he wins the world championship that's great um one thing i'll point out here is he is winning a lot less than he used to in 2018 he has 12 pro victories 2019 12 2023 2021 four um in the past two years he's won seven pro races that's less than he won in 2019 alone it's kind of a funny dip we've seen from him and it's hard to argue with his success because he has won you know think of those seven victories two our tour de france stages and two our world championships um, that's really impressive. Uh, becomes you know one one of seven riders of all time to win back to back world championships. You can't really argue with that. But it is kind of this up. He is he's extremely up and down, and seems more inconsistent post COVID. Uh, after that COVID break, um, I know he had, did have some life changes where his father died, and then he got married and had a kid. It could just be that his life is been a little bit more unsettled, but I'm I'm not so sure what's going on. He'll look like he is goes from being the strongest rider in the world to someone who cannot compete with the likes of Tadej Pogacar, Wout Van Aert, and Matthew Vanderpool. You know, part of this could just be the rise of those guys have kind of cannibalized races that he would kind of easily win in 2018 and 2019. Now, you know, he's fast, but he's not as fast as Vanderpool or Van Aert on an uphill sprint. He is, you know, a good climber, but he's not as good of a climber as Roglic or Pogacar. So could just be that like a for lack of a better analogy, a lot of his like habitat is being encroached upon by these this rising, you know, kind of crop of stars. And that has pinched his ability to win. Um, but but doesn't but still means that when he is fit and focused and things fall in his favor, he can still win the biggest races in the world. Um, Egan Bernal is fifth. Uh, really, really odd year from him. He goes, wins the Giro d'Italia, and then doesn't do really anything else until the Vuelta. And while his results at the Vuelta weren't great, I thought he really lit up that race with his climbing and uh, aggressive attitude. So 
It's hard to knock him for that. He did get COVID in between the Giro and the Vuelta, which could explain the, the slight lack of form at the Vuelta, where that is going to screw with your, with your preparation for that race. I potentially think that um, he's in a funny spot. He's 24 years old, so he's older than Pogacar, um, just not as talented. I think this is hard for us to kind of conceptualize because he burst onto the scene in 2019 and won the tour. And it's like, wow, this guy's going to be winning tours for the next 10 years. Um, two years later, he is kind of disrupted by a younger, better version of that. But he's still, as I mentioned, Pogacar suffering misfortune um, up top. I think that he would be one of the main beneficiaries if, if Roglic continues to struggle with crashes in the Tour de France and something happens to Pogacar, Egan Bernal could easily find himself just back winning a tour. And then we have two, two young riders who have both won two tours. And it's a lot more interesting rival, rivalry at that point. I, and I don't, as much as I love Tadej Pogacar, and I think he's one of the most talented riders we've ever seen, I wouldn't totally write off Bernal. Um, I don't think he can win like head up, like head to head, but that doesn't happen a lot. There's not a ton of examples of just great riders in the same generation who are healthy and firing on all cylinders at the same time. If you remember, like Boonen and Cancellar actually very rarely were both on form at the same time in the spring classics. And both won a lot of their biggest races while the other one was dealing with an injury or a cocaine suspension in the, in the case of Boonen. So uh, Bernal, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine him beating Pogacar straight up because Pogacar is a better climber and time trialist. But um, I don't. I would not write off Bernal yet, and I think that that Giro win was very impressive and, and probably one of the most underrated wins of the year. And then to kind of wrap up the rest, you have like Matthew Vanderpool, um, kind of a disappointing finish for him. It sounds crazy because he's in seventh, but um, you'd expect him to be one of the top riders in the world because he is so talented. But he did take a big break for to do the Olympic mountain bike race, um, and then crashed and hurt his back. So that that set him back quite a bit. It's not totally clear to me like where he goes from here. Is he going to keep pursuing mountain biking? If so, that could make it difficult to ever really go past what he's doing now, which, which is still impressive. Um, he's won one monument in his career, two at a front stage and wore the yellow jersey for, I believe, six stages. Um, pretty impressive. I, I will be interested to see if he does try to finish a tour. I thought if we go back to that tour, I thought that was a little bit unideal for him that he left. He was kind of the star of the first week. And then Vanderpool kind of had, or Van Art kind of had his moment after Vanderpool left. I don't think anyone, maybe only a few super fans noticed, but it was a little bit, I thought he one-upped Vanderpool, where it's like, yes, Winning a stage and wearing the yellow jersey is impressive, but a lot of people do that. Someone does that every year. Um, but to win a mountain stage, a time trial, and a sprint stage, especially the final sprint stage in the Champs Elysees, that is historically impressive. So it could potentially um, motivate Vanderpool to head back to the tour with a little bit more motivation to stick in it for three weeks. Having said that, he does not seem at all interested in racing Grand Tours. He doesn't even seem that interested in road cycling, to be honest with you. So it's possible we just always get him dropping out after the first week of Grand Tours, which would be slightly, slightly disappointing. Um, but he also, I mean, he is 26 and he's going to be 27 next year. And he does have to something to keep an eye on is there is a lot of great, great riders coming up that are either around his age, like Casper Askren, 
or younger than him. So, you know, he could be getting squeezed from two sides where it's riders improving in his own generation as well as rising stars who start to push him out if he does not stay in the sport and stay sharp. For example, Sonny Cabrelli, the 31-year-old Italian who I kind of had written off as a B-grade bunch spinner, uh, emerged this year as like a bona fide classic star. He wins Perru Bay. He was, I thought, one of the most impressive riders at the Tour de France. Didn't win a stage, but was at the front of a wide variety of stages, displayed just a really incredible endurance and strength. This is exactly the type of rider that can kind of squeeze out riders like Vanderpool and Van Aert at these big monuments, which is exactly what we saw this year. Because him and Casper Askren are very talented, and they're both focused on road cycling all the time. Um, I think it's just tough for Van Aert and Vanderpool. They're chasing cyclocross world titles in the offseason. And I wrote about this last offseason that they're going to have a hard time going and beating talented road cyclists like Casper Askren at the Tour of Flanders and Paris Roubaix, which is exactly what happened. So there is a point where your your variety of skills do start to hurt you. Um, If you're not totally focused, it is really difficult to have the level of success that ta- riders that are maybe not quite as talented, but are still very talented, who focus on the event you're trying to win. Joao Almeida comes in ninth. Um, really impressive season for him. He, I thought he was kind of like one of the breakout stars of 2020. And the fact that he, he, he didn't improve on his Giro d'Italia position, but he did improve his like overall season-wide performance. And if we remember that Giro, he was he lost four like four and a half minutes on stage four, I believe. Um, it was kind of a nothing uphill finish, and he just totally cracked. But then, other than that, he was there for every major, you know, every major point of the race, except when he was waiting for Remco Evenepoel, his teammate, whose team bizarrely made him wait for, it, even though it was Remco's first ever Grand Tour, and he didn't really have a serious shot of contending. I thought a truly bizarre decision. So. Factoring all that in, the fact that he was able to finish as high up as he did was was really impressive. And then Richard Carapaz in 10th. I thought this was kind of like the quintessential Carapaz year where he gets third at the Tour de France, never really was able to challenge for second or first because he's just kind of outclassed as, as far as a GC contender at a Grand Tour by riders like Vindegaard and Pogacar who can just time trial and climb better than him. So it's really hard to make up that difference somewhere if you're losing time in the two most significant parts of the race. But then he wins the Olympic road race with just really like clat, like his classic tactical awareness. It was, it was really like vintage Carapaz the way he won that. And this is like, this is a classic, this, I think this is like the best case Carapaz season. The only thing that could have made it better was if he like went to the Giro and won the Giro. I think that's what you're going to get from Richard Carapaz going forward. But it'll be really interesting to see what Ineos does here um, because Adam Yates had a pretty good season too. The thing about Adam Yates though is you wonder, you're like, so Adam Yates finishes eighth, Carapaz finishes 10th. These are potentially like the best case scenarios for both of those riders and neither were really able to challenge for seriously challenge for a Grand Tour win. Um, and Ineos is a team that wants to win Grand Tours full stop. So what, how do they solve that riddle? And will these guys have, have the ability to lead the team at future Grand Tours? Or are they going to say, well, if we're going to get fourth, why don't we just back Pavel Sivakov and see what happens? Or they do not seem to be backing Bernal um, at the level that I would want them to. I think he's the most talented rider 
at least Grand Tour rider on that team by a long shot. And the fact that they they don't really full-throatedly endorse him, um, I think the Volta was the perfect example of that, where they seemed much more interested in Adam Yates finishing on the podium than Egan Bernal trying to win the race. And Bernal has come out since then, and there's been a lot of grumblings that he wants to leave the team. And I'm not, I'm not totally shocked because it doesn't seem like he's ever going to be fully supported at the team in the way that he thinks he deserves to be supported. And I've also heard that Richard Carapaz isn't too happy either, um, which doesn't surprise me because Carapaz rode the 2020 Volta faster than Primoz Roglic and really lost the race because his team was so weak. That Ineos team with that Volta was awful. Um, and that, in my opinion, made the difference between Carapaz winning and getting second place. As far as the teams, um, to kind of quick step, is first. They've been first two of the last three years. Really, really an impressive run from them. And if we look at wins, podiums, and top tens, they lead in all three as well. I think the thing, though, they give up, the thing they've identified, like the inefficiency they've identified is just winning races. Um, they sign a lot of ra- like riders like Pascal Ackerman or Sam Bennett, who would be available to anyone, but teams don't sign them because they don't fit into some type of grand tour tapestry where you can have you're trying to win the race. Dakota Quickstep just doesn't even try to win grand tours. They just go to win stages and win one days. And that is how they rack up so many wins, podiums, and top tens by just kind of like almost willingly sacrificing GC riding. Their their manager Patrick Lefevre even came out earlier, or like a week ago. They had a rider, Matteo Catiano. He finishes 12th at the Tour de France, and Lefevre came out and just said, "Well, that's like." <laughs> What a stupid result. Why would anyone care about that? And we're like, that's super, that is super impressive. He finished that high. So many teams sacrifice so much just to try to finish inside the top 10. And the Kona Quick Step almost accidentally rides into 12th place at the tour, which shows you where their priorities are. Um, the, the big thing I noticed from this ranking is Alpes and Phoenix finished sixth. Al- Alpes and Phoenix is not a world tour team. Um, and their budget, is, according to them, is, is, under, 10 mil- is under 10 million. I, I would read that to be. 9 million, 9 million, 900,000. You know, it's probably as close to 10 million as you can be um, if, they're, if that's what they're saying. It sounds like a lot, but you know, if you look at the team that they're in front of, Borhansgro, AG2R Citron, Groupama FDJ, Israel Startup Nation, Movistar, Trek Sigafredo, Astana, Kofidis, EF, the, all those teams probably have budgets of 20 million euros, if not more, you know, 20, 20 to 30 to even 40 million euros. Um, the fact that Alpes and Phoenix is finishing above them in the UCI points rankings, as well as this like just presence throughout the year. They were seem like at the front, challenging for the win at almost every race um, on a budget that is like half of that is super super impressive. They have hacked the system a little bit where they're a second division team. They kind of willingly aren't a world tour team because it means they get to pick which races they want to go to as long as they can get invites from the organizers. But the fact that they have Matthew Vanderpool means that they can get an invite to pretty much any race they want because he is one of the most exciting racers in the world. So that's not replicable by everybody, but it is an interesting model. Um, and I do think they could they could still do what they're doing at the World Tour level. I mean, a lot of the riders, they, they kind of look like they're like a rugby team when they're at the race compared to everyone else. They're just physically bigger. And they know they're not going to win any GC. They're not going to win a GC. They're not going to win a stage race because their size. They just can't climb with everyone else. But they're like willingly punting on, on a discipline that I feel like a lot of teams put way too much, way too much energy into, to excel in uh, bunch finishes, 
difficult classic-like stages at stage races, difficult classics in general that are actually classics. Um, and it, it's a really efficient way to rack up a lot of wins and a lot of points without a ton of money. And when I look at my, the, my BTP net projections for this year, um, it's a little bit different because I use uh, Procycling Stats points and these are UCI points, but it's close enough to give us like an initial impression. The big takeaways are, A, Quebec and Next Hash is, is awful. Um, the worst team by far over the past two years. They get three World Tour wins this year, three World Tour wins last year. Um, that's the lowest of, of any team in the World Tour. Um, just very bad. Um, and the fact that they had Gino Mater and Ben O'Connor go to different teams this year and instantly become like world-class GC riders is a terrible sign. And the fact that Michael, they even had world-class riders come in like Michael Valgren and Mark Cavendish who did were awful on the team. And then they left to go to other teams. And almost as soon as they leave, they are once again riding at a world-class level. That's not a great endorsement for the team. Um, that's actually shows me something is seriously broken about about the organization there. But having said this, that was not the model was not surprised by this. Neither the model nor I. Um, I had the model had them last place. I agreed with that assessment. Um, but what did catch me out, um, me and the model out, is just how poor that, just how poor bike exchange was. I thought they would finish. I had them projected tenth, and they finished seventeenth only above DSM and Quebec ASOS. DSM is another team that really surprised me how bad they were. Um, they did lose Mark Hershey, but they still had a lot of good riders. Um, and I thought they could kind of recover from the loss of Mark Hershey by you know, fostering those young riders, riders who had broken out in 2021, or sorry, in 2020. Instead, they went back to this weird model of, of just like going all in for Cesc Bull at the tour. In these tour sprints, Cesc Bull is not a world-class sprinter. The fact that they were selling out for him at the tour was really bizarre to me. It showed kind of an odd, I would say, kind of demonstrably incorrect decision by team management, confusing decision. I'm not still not sure why they made that decision. Um, and their inability to pivot from it shows just really a lack of flexibility. Um, and that flexibility is, is reflected in their continued disenfranchisement of riders who break out on the team. Um, I mean, Mark Hershey would be the obvious example. They like fired him two days into the season, um, still for unknown reasons. And then Michael Storer, their breakout star from this year, um, is leaving the team next year to go to Groupama FDJ. Do they just continually dis like disenfranchise their breakout stars, probably with the thought of, oh, we can find more of them. At some point, that's going to catch up to you, and it definitely caught up to them this year. Astana is another team that was um, just a stinker. Um, they were, for, for what their budget is, I don't, know, I don't know the exact figures, but they are sponsored by an oil and natural gas sovereign wealth fund, the Kazakhstan sovereign wealth fund. So I would expect that it is a decent budget, and they were just terrible. They finished towards the bottom, and and they, they are making a lot of changes this offseason. And they did have a super, super unsettled year with a lot of, they, they fired Alexander Vinokurov like two times, and then he came back, and then he kicked out the people who fired him. And it, I mean, it was just very messy. That definitely leaked over to the team's performance. Um, another team-based thing to touch on before we go is Ineos. Um, they finish incredibly high up. They are second in the UCI team points rankings. This is about exactly where I thought they would finish at the start of the year. So you would think, just looking at this, wow, great, great year for them. They get second in the UCI points rankings. They win the Giro d'Italia. They win a Grand Tour. 
And you'd think like, wow, that's awesome. But if we look under the hood a little bit, they did rack up a lot of those points at one week stage races in the spring who like literally no one else was at. They were just going to these one week, one week races that no other Grand Tour contenders were going to and just like stacking the top three or four positions. Um, kind of like an amateur move, actually. This is like this is what happened, literally what happens in amateur racing where a team just goes with a super like a supercharged roster roster and cleans up at a local race. That's kind of what it seemed like. And that's where they got a lot of their UCI points and a lot of their wins and a lot, a lot of their success. This, is, this did not translate to big races, though. They didn't win a single monument. They, they win one Grand Tour, the Giro d'Italia. But this team is, they have like a $60 million budget. This is by far the biggest budget. They want to win the Tour de France. Like that's what they're here for. They, they didn't really challenge for the Tour, for a Tour win either this year or last year. They don't really have a rider on the roster who could seriously challenge for a tour win. So things are not going well there. And while they have a few like up and coming talents like Tom Pickcock or, or Pavel Sivakov, it, it's not clear if, I mean, Tom Pickcock has only raced one grand tour. We're not even sure if he's a serious climber, if he could even challenge for a grand tour sometime. It's, I'm surprised to see him penciled in as just like, oh, he's, he's Ineos's next grand tour contender. Um, we have no idea if that's the type of rider he is. Um, I would assume Ineos is equally as clueless because until you do it, no one really knows if he can do it. So the fact that their current, you know, their current established stars like Garrett Thomas, Richie Port, Richard Carapaz, Egan Bernal are a step below the like Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic, and even I, I would say even probably Joao Almeida is perhaps more talented than them. Than them. That is going to be troubling for them, and that they don't have the up-and-coming stars are going to other teams, at least the up-and-coming Tour de France stars. Um, this shows, I think, personally, that they put they, have, they don't really have like a scouting department. They just have one Italian agent who funnels all of his clients to the team, and they've been kind of dining out on that since the team started. They've never really developed a pipeline outside of this agent. It, to me, that's just putting way too much way too much of the team's success in on one person's shoulders um especially an agent he doesn't work for the team he wor- he works for himself so that's a little bizarre that they would rely so much on an outside third party for that and that's how they've missed on a lot of these riders that you don't think they didn't sign Joel Ameda, they didn't sign Tadej Pogacar they didn't sign Primoz Roglic all three of those guys were there for the taking but since they weren't clients of this one Italian agent Enios didn't really have a shot to sign them um, we're seeing this totally bite them in the butt now. Um, I mean, uh, speaking of unsettled teams, Enios, Dave Railsford is kind of the mastermind behind the team. He has been out with health issues. Um, I definitely think that has caused the decline of the team in some ways. And we saw today that they're firing Tim Carrison, who was their performance director since the very, very beginning of the team. He was kind of the orchestr- he orchestrated the Bradley Wiggins tour win back in 2012. He was a huge part of Chris Room's development as a rider who you know, then came in and won four Tour de France's for the team. So the fact that they're parting ways with him is super notable. Um, I, I, I don't know what went on behind the scenes there. If this is due to the fallout from the UK anti-doping investigation or they're just not happy with them. They think, hey, we can do better with someone else. It, it's, I, I don't totally understand but it is clear that they're just outgunned performance-wise when they get to these big, big races. 
um, in ways that they weren't in the past. So it, it's not totally surprising to me that they would shake something up. With Brailsford stepping back, now Rod Ellingworth, who came over from Bahrain Victorious, is the de facto principal of the team. So perhaps he wants to bring his own guys in. The only thing about Rod Ellingworth is he is considered um, like a performance genius, but he was running the Bahrain team when they were terrible. He leaves to come to Ineos this year, and Bahrain just turns it around and has an amazing year. So um, not, the, not to the greatest look for Rod Ellingworth there. And you just kind of wonder, like, how did this team fall so far behind? Um, it's almost like this slow motion rot where if you look at you know, races that frankly don't really matter that much. They look amazing. And then when they show up to the tour, they're just, it just seems like they're in the still in the stone age. Like they're preparing for the tour by going to the Dauphiné Libre or sorry, the Cartoon du Dauphiné when everyone else is going to like specific training camps. So it's like Ineos would have been the team that would have been thinking outside the box five to 10 years ago. But now they seem the ones stuck in their ways and they're not being as curious or inventive as they should be. And this also comes out with, with their roster selection and their rider recruitment. I mean, a lot of those, these riders, it is, is a little surprising to me. They're not being more aggressive with guys that, at least from my standpoint, are just better. Um, that the fact that they're paying Garrett Thomas so much money and it's clear that the sport, you know, hasn't quite passed him by, but his days as a grand tour contender are over. Um, Richard Carapaz is not going to be able to compete on a level playing field with Primoz Roglic, Tade Pogacar, even his teammate Egan Bernal, because he just can't time trial. Um, Egan Bernal can't compete with Tade Pogacar because he can't time trial as, as well, or climb as well. Um, it's crazy to me that Tade Pogacar is not on Ineos. You know, he was, did not have a contract like three years ago. Um, I cannot believe they didn't just throw whatever it took at him to sign him. Um, I think part of this also goes to the fact that they do want British Grand Tour winners. Um, if you remember, Chris Froome was African when he won his first Tour de France. He was Kenyan. They made him switch his nationality to, to the UK. So they definitely want riders from the British Islands. And you saw sort of like Theo Gegenhart would be a big, big priority of theirs or Adam Yates. And it does seem like they're kind of bringing along their British talents who, frankly, I think are just not at a level to win a Tour de France at the expense of riders like Carapaz and Bernal, who still are not at that top, top level, could win a Tour if things fell in the right way for them. And one more note I want to touch on before I go is the fact that Rimko Evenepoel, it was announced, I, I found out last night that he's going to the Belgium Awful Ride in Lawrence, Kansas. It's on Halloween, October 31st. Um, this is completely insane to me. Uh, I'm from Lawrence, Kansas. I started riding a bike in Lawrence, Kansas. It is not, Kansas is not a cycling hub. Um, it has in recent years. I'm shocked that they are able to get stars of, you know, even like Ian Boswell or Ted King to come and race there at the, uh, at Unbound Gravel. And this, to, to me, this is another level. I don't think I've ever seen a rider, a top rider in their prime flying across the world to go to frankly, the middle of nowhere to race a bike in a gravel race. Um, I assume the sponsor specialized is pushing this, but it's super interesting and also crazy at the same time. I mean, this is a really important time of year to be resting and recovering. Um, you don't get a huge off season as a pro cyclist. I think, you know, I, if I was a Remco 
if I was in his management team, I would, I would hate this move. I think he should be resting and relaxing right now and then getting ready to build up for the coming season. But instead, he's flying across the world to race a uh, gravel race in Lawrence, Kansas. It's completely insane. Um, it's very cool for Lawrence. It's definitely a big coup for gravel racing. I, even though, I mean, I would contend that, that the Belgian waffle ride started as like mixed terrain. Um, the original course in San Diego was a lot. A lot of it was on road. It is kind of lead, leaned into the gravel angle as it's gotten bigger, as gravel has gotten bigger. But this is this is really 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 like a big development for gravel racing. Um, interested to see how this turns out, but I do think big picture that this is kind of a huge mistake on Evanipol's part. I think he had a slightly disappointing season. I think a lot is expected of him next season. Um, eventually, Quickstep is going to want him to start competing for wins at these races as opposed to just looking good and being the young kid who looks really strong because there are a lot of you know, think of Florian Vermeesh, same age as Jermenko Evenepoel getting second at Roubaix. So the fact that he's flying around the world when he should be resting and building up for next season is, I think, not a great use of his energy or time. But it certainly is interesting to see. But it also shows us just how powerful Specialized is to that team. Um, I guess, technically, it's the Koenig Quickstep are the two big sponsors. But Specialized really is the de facto owner of that team. Um, I would I would guess they put in a significant amount of cash to sponsor it, and probably are one of their most consistent cash sponsors. And they clearly have the juice to tell one of the stars of the team that you are going to Kansas in the middle of the off season to race your bike against a bunch of amateurs. Um, pretty pretty big flex from specialized. Um, it's definitely going to be, it's definitely good for them. I'm just not sure if it's good for, for Evanipol, but it, it does give us a glimpse into glimpse into just how powerful specialized is that is at that team. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and have a great week. And I will be back next week to go over the recent transfers. All right. Bye.